Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. That the Son of God would become a man. That he would die on the cross, making a purification for sins. Making a purification for our sins, for the the sins of, of yesterday, last night, and even this morning that we've, that we've struggled with, that continue to persist in our life longer than we want, that, that we can be purified through the blood of Christ. And we, we grieve that our, that our sin caused Christ to bleed. And we rejoice in the forgiveness and the newness of life we can walk in. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would enlarge our view of Christ. And we we hear the verse that Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And at the same time, we turn and do things on our own. And we'll say we have a large view of Christ and live in light of a small view of Christ. And Father, I I repent of that in my own life and ask for your forgiveness. We praise you for being a God who forgives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So New Year's Day has not always been kind to the Mulliken family. There was, a, there was a while there where we were batting about 50-50, whether it was a peaceful day or not. It always seems that on New Year's Day, we were having floor drains back up. We were having uh, furnaces not working. We were going to the ER. One year, we had a tree stand that we discovered had been leaking for a month and a half uh, and our white carpet was black and slimy under it, and our hardwood floor was black and slimy under that. Uh, and then other years, Nebraska blows a bowl game. Um, or they don't even appear in one. And so it, it's not always been good, but thankfully, the year is not always determined by January 1st. And I don't know what your first week of 2018 has been for your family, has been for your work, has been for your faith. Uh, But I know what I, as as one of your pastors, what the pastoral staff, what we are hoping 2018 will be for us as a church. And what we are hoping is that this will be a year that we listen to the Lamb. That this will be a year we come here together in this room on Sunday mornings that we meet for different Bible study activities, that we meet for our adult Bible fellowship activities, that we, that we are praying in each other's homes together, that this will be a year that we as a church set aside to listen to the Lamb. And we'll do that uh, in various ways through our, through our sermons. As we, as we lead up to Easter, we will, we will take some time and walk through the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, after that, 
we'll look through a, a specific time of Jesus' ministry in John. This fall, we'll go through Jesus' teaching on different issues that we need to hear from him on. And in order to fully listen to him, we need to take time to really know who it is we're listening to. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as, as the baby that came in the manger, to think of him as the man who walked the countryside teaching and healing, as the man who hung on the cross, as the Savior who rose from the dead, uh, as the prophesied Messiah. And all of these are true, but none of those individual titles is complete in and of itself. And I want us to, to carefully avoid the Ricky Bobby fallacy of picking the Jesus we want to pray to and only praying to the sweet baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers. I want us to avoid a Christology that focuses only on one aspect of Jesus and instead to have a full and complete Christology that, that, that carefully looks at Jesus as he's presented in all of Scripture, not just in the Gospels or just part of the Gospels. For example, we don't always view Jesus as our Creator. We don't always view Him as the new Adam. We don't always view ourselves properly in light of Him. We don't think of Him all the time as our great high priest or as the author of our salvation. But in the coming weeks, we're going to look at those things as we look at knowing Jesus. And hopefully, at the end of these few weeks, before we dive into the Gospels, we will have a more filled out Christology in our own hearts and minds. The author of Hebrews set out to explain the greatness of Jesus. I have a friend that, that he, he considers the subtitle of Hebrews to be, Jesus is better than. He's better than the angels. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Melchizedek. He's greater than the high priest. He's greater than the sacrifices. And so the author of Hebrews, he sets out to write this, but, but he sets out in a, in a peculiar way. If you haven't yet done so, please get out your Bibles and open up to Hebrews 1. These next few weeks, we're going to be mostly in the book of Hebrews, looking at different things that the author has to tell us. And as he starts out this letter about the greatness of Jesus, he, he does so in an interesting way. Here are his opening words. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is an interesting letter. It's an interesting opening, and this letter doesn't seem to be as much about how God communicates as it does seem to be about Jesus himself. But remember, remember the author's audience is, is to a first century Hebrew audience. Some of these, many of these in fact, may have been Jews who, who weren't quite sure about Jesus yet. And so he's appealing to them, he's saying, look, God spoke to us by the prophets, now he's spoken to us by his son, and then it's as though the author is assuming a question. He's assuming the question, who is this Jesus and why should we listen to him? And so he's going to start going into who this Jesus is and why we should listen. 
And the state, uh, the author is asserting that it, in this opening lines, that for us to properly hear from God, we need to properly hear from Jesus as well. That God communicates with us via Jesus. And so as we look to listen to the Lamb this year, let's look at why we should be listening to the Lamb as the author of Hebrews states it. So let's go and read. We're going to to finish out the first three verses. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, verse 2, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God the Father speaks to us through the Lamb. And God the Father speaks to us through the Lamb who is the glorious, sovereign Creator. Sorry for how faint that font is. I edited that poorly. Uh, You'll just have to try and follow along here. So in verse 3a, we have, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. When I was a kid, growing up in Omaha, we we would come to western Iowa to visit different friends. And when you come to western Iowa from Omaha, you encounter the natural marvel, which is... The lowest hills. And and they are impressive hills. And as a kid, I remember marveling at these things. And sometimes we'd go hiking in them. They were so steep and they were so big. And and I, I thought, boy, these hills are beautiful. And to a child, they were mountains. And then one day we drove to Colorado. The Los the Hills didn't seem so majestic and glorious anymore as we were hundreds of miles away from the Rocky Mountain Range and and I could not stop as a kid from looking out the windshield and seeing these mountains and asking my parents am am I going to be able to see snow on the mountains still it's June or July yeah you'll you'll be able to see the snow and this was a glory unique and unto its own The Los Hills couldn't touch the glory of the Rocky Mountains. And just driving up, and and it never got old to look at the mountains. And every time I go back to Colorado, I'm not like, oh, (laughs) been there. There's a glory to it. It was a different glory. It was unique and surpassing. Everything I had seen before. And in the same way, God has this glory that is unique and surpassing to any other glory. Jesus is the radiance of that. In the glory of God is the glory of Jesus. Albert Muller says this. He says, verse 3 is an exposition of how the Son reveals the Father to us. 
The idea of radiance goes back to the notion of Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. The Shekinah was a shining, visible glory that demonstrated the majesty of God as in Exodus or or at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Looking at Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God. Looking at Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God. And then he goes, more than that, Christ is the exact expression of the Father's nature. Christ shares the divine nature with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. This is where the divine Son is different from a human son. Some of you have children that, that look like you. Um, when we first moved to Des Moines, I don't think my wife had yet even been to Westchester, and she was at a store, and somebody stopped her, probably one of you, stopped her in Target and said, you must be Emily because that has to be Chuck's son. (laughs) I don't know who you were, but that's bold (laughs) and accurate. (laughs) He may look like me. He's not the exact imprint of me. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. This is is the author's way of saying there's a trinity and they're perfectly united while being three persons. And Jesus is the second person of that trinity. He is, Paul said it this way, He is very nature God. He is glorious. He is not just the Son of God. He is, as we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit. He is glorious. And I know I'm I'm skipping around here from the glorious sovereign Creator. We're going to go to Creator. Look at verse, look at 2C. Through whom He, God, created the world. There's a challenge to thinking Jesus is Creator and what that means. First, we need to realize that the Trinity was fully involved in creation. In Acts 3, Peter, while talking in the temple courtyard, he referred to Jesus as the author of life. Here in Hebrews, the language is that God created through Jesus. This paints a picture for me, and this is just my picture, so it's probably wrong, but that God is sitting back and saying, Jesus, put land between. Let there be land between the water, and Jesus put the land there. While the Spirit is hovering over the waters, the whole Trinity is involved. And it's through the Son that the Father created The Father and the Son were working together. Creation was not some act of cosmic whimsy, but divinely thought out, planned, and carried out. Understanding that Jesus is so involved in creation, that everything was made through Him, does in no way diminish our view of God the Father as Creator. But it could possibly elevate our view of God the Son as Creator. If, if we haven't 
looked at that already. And seeing the unity of God, of, of God the Father and God the Son in creation helps us to also see their unity in the redemption of creation. When we look at Jesus as Creator, we realize that while Jesus submits to God the Father, He is not less than God the Father. And then we have the sovereign piece of this. How how do these verses point to Jesus as sovereign over creation? Well, in 3b it says that He, Jesus, upholds the universe with His power. When you sing, and I imagine you guys sing this often, he's got the whole world in his hands. When when you sing or when you think of the song, he's got the whole world in his hands, what do you envision? You imagine God going, woo, woo, like like the earth is a fidget spinner for the Lord. I hope you don't, that's wrong. Whatever is existing is there because Jesus is willing it to exist. It's that he so sovereignly reigns and holds everything in existence. Paul, while testifying in Acts before the men of Athens, he said that in the Lord we live, move, and have our being. We owe our existence to him. Jesus is not just the creator. He is our sovereign sustainer. He made this. He keeps it going. Jesus wrote the law of gravities that keep our earth revolving around the sun while spinning at about 23,000 miles an hour in a way that we don't get nauseous unless we sit in a teacup at the theme park. He wrote all that, and he holds it together. This is not a God of the gaps where we can't explain it, so we say it's God. We say we can't explain it, and God made it that way. What we are experiencing is what God created and put into place. And He doesn't just sustain the world on this big level. He sustains us. And we feel that sustaining power. As we face times of hardship, who is it that holds us up? It's Jesus. It's the Lord that sustains us through giving us the Holy Spirit that can groan out in words we don't understand. He's not just setting the boundaries for the oceans. He is sustaining us as we go through life. Even to the small levels. Remember what Jesus said? The Father knows the hairs on your head. So what's to make us think that he would hold up a tree and not do anything for us? He would dress the flower of the field. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, he he dresses the lilies of the field. How much more is he going to dress you? We need this reminder in our theology of Jesus, especially after Christmas. You know, just a couple weeks ago, in front of the cross, the cross was back a little bit, in front of it was a small wooden replica of a manger. And we were talking about how the majesty on high entered that manger as a helpless baby. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the infancy of Jesus around Christmas time that we forget he's also our gloriously sovereign creator.
He is God who became man and dwelt among us. We, we, especially me, need to also recognize that if he created this world, if he sustains it even down to the tiniest details, then there is nothing in it, including me, that is outside of his authority. And so as we read the Gospels, the Gospels get really personal. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes, oh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you think of a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus doesn't say it's not just the outward, he he doesn't just go after the outward action, he says, your heart and mind need to be right. Jesus goes inside of us, and he has the right to do so because we are his creation. If I make a table for my home, I have the right to tell it to stand properly. I mean, it's weird because it's an inanimate object, but I have the right as the creator to make sure it's performing the way I created it to. And so as we think of our homes, the property our homes lie on were created by the Savior and is sustained by the Savior. As we think of our children, as we think of our goals, as we think of our future All of it is held by the word of his power. It is all subject to Christ. And so he has the right to say things like, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in front of my father. Or a rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven any easier than a camel, fully loaded camel can go through the eye of a needle or you can't get to the Father except through me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus has the right to claim exclusivity because he is exclusive. He is unique. So we see that God spoke to us through the Lamb who is not only this gloriously sovereign creator, he speaks to us through the Lamb who is the saving and reigning royal heir. Look at 2b here. It says, Whom he, God, appointed heir of all things. This is... Jesus is appropriately entitled. This is his due, is all creation. All of this is for Jesus. Let's think about this, the logical conclusion. Jesus created the world, he upholds the universe, and he is the appointed heir. It's all for him. And it's easy for us to think of this on the macro level, the large scale. The mountains are for him. The oceans are for him. The galaxies are for him. All of this is for Jesus. But we also need to take it to the micro, the very personal scale. Remember Jesus created everything? Our kids are are for him. The property our home is on, our home itself, is for Jesus. Our future is for him. Our past is for him. 
Our vehicles are for his purposes. There's not a thing you own that isn't ultimately for Jesus. Think through your toolbox, your recreational things. All of that is ultimately for Jesus. Do you go through life with that mindset? Or or are you trying to say, here's the stuff for Jesus and here's the things for me? I'm going to pretend these things are not for Jesus and I'm I'm going to make these things serve my purposes and not let them be subject to the Savior, Creator, and Sustainer of the world. There's a principle here that God appointed Jesus heir of all things. When you, when you deal with a business who's owned by someone and they, point, they appoint an heir to that business, you no longer deal with just the one, you deal with both. To deal with God is to deal with Jesus. To deal with Jesus is to deal with God the Father. We deal with both. Jesus is fully invested in creation. This gets hard because we have to acknowledge that we're not the point. That we're not the most important one. When we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, we acknowledge that what we have and who we are is ultimately for His purposes and His glory, not our own. And then we get to 3C. So there's the royal heir. We're we're piecing this together. Now we're going to get to the saving. That after making purification for sins. The author makes this such a small phrase and he's going to give so much time to it later in the epistle. After making purification for sins. Now if we're not careful, we can fall into a trap where we think that our sin only offends God the Father. God created, I sinned and defended Him and Jesus said, don't worry bro, I got you. I'll come die on the cross for your sins. That's not the way it happened. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all completely entwined and involved in the work of creation. And so to think that our sin is only a problem for one of them is an error in thought. Remember, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact imprint of of God. When we talk about the holiness of God, Jesus has that same holiness. When we talk about breaking the Word of God, how does Jesus view the Word of God? He says, not a, not a dot or iota of this will pass away. Our sin is an offense to Jesus too. He's not, we we need to be very careful here to think that he's not buddy Jesus who came to the rescue. He is the Holy Savior Jesus who said sin is a problem and it's such a problem that I'm going to enter into the world, I'm going to live, I'm going to teach, I'm going to heal, and I'm going to die on the cross for their sins. Sin needs to be dealt with, and I'm the only one who can do it, and I'm going to do it. 
from the moment that the first sin was committed and dealt with, it said, remember what God said to Eve? One of your offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. At that moment, Jesus said, I'm going. And instead, Jesus, offended with our sin, united with God, so it wasn't like God was really angry and Jesus was like, hey, why don't we cool it a little bit? It was just some fruit. You know, we debated that tree to begin with, so let's, let's try and compromise here. That's not how redemption worked. God and Jesus were unified in the curses on humanity in the ground. They were unified in the curses on the serpent. They were unified in banishing them from the garden. And Jesus, in His holiness, in His glory, in His roles of creator-sustainer, He didn't wipe the slate clean. He didn't say, okay, let's nuke the earth and make a new one. Which was in His right to do, in His capability to do. Instead, He said, I'm going to, at great cost to myself, purify sin. I'm going to take what was scarlet and make it white as freshly fallen snow. I'm going to pour out my blood. And so while he is the royal heir, he is also the saving heir, but there's more. Because when he was done with that, he took a seat. And where was that seat? Well, well in verse 3, just after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus reigns. And in, in the span of Jesus in eternity, there's not a pre-authority and post-authority like we mark time, B.C. and A.D. No, the Jesus had authority the whole time. And now he's seated, he's seated at the right hand of the Most High. Jesus holds royal status. Remember what Paul said in Philippians, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think of the most notorious figures of history. In the Bible, we have people like Pharaoh and Jezebel and Herod. You think of dictators who have ter terrorized the world since then. They will all one day bow a knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm not king of the world, Jesus is. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee will recognize, whether they do so joyfully or mournfully, every knee will recognize and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, though, Jesus is not distant from us. He does not view us as minions to do His bidding or treat us as a footstool to His position. Instead, he prays for us. He is our advocate. In a few weeks, we'll learn what it means that he is our high priest. And Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the majesty, he gives us access to the Father. Not only by praying for us, but through Jesus, we have access to be children of God. Romans 8 tells us that through the spirit of adoption, we are co-heirs with Christ. That he brings us into the inheritance that he has. 
as we start winding our time down here this morning, I have a few questions I want you to ask yourself. I want you to ask yourself, have I too small a view of Jesus? Do I have too small a view of Jesus? Am I minimizing the Christ? Paul wrote that if we confess with our mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. When you personally confess Jesus as Lord, I just want to know, I just want you to think about how far into your life does that lordship extend? Is Jesus Lord on Sunday morning? Is Jesus Lord of 10% of your finances? Is Jesus Lord of your career? Is Jesus Lord of where you live? Whether what city you're in or even what part of that city you're in? Is Jesus Lord of that? Does the Lordship of Christ reach to every place in your heart that Hebrews 1, 1 1-3 suggests that it should? Or have you been trying to live with a smaller, more timid version of Jesus that allows you to control and hold royalty over your own life? The next question. Am I underestimating Jesus? We need to be very careful not to underestimate Jesus. We need to not underestimate the love that would cause Jesus to say, All of them betrayed me. All of creation is groaning because of their sin, and so I'm going to go die for them. While they're still sinners, I'm going to die for them. Do not underestimate the love God has for you in Jesus Christ. Do not underestimate him as your glorious sustainer. We need to be careful not to underestimate the life-creating and life-changing power of Jesus. And the authority that he has. The next question I have, and I I want you to ask this question as we get ready to go through this year. Do I listen carefully to the Lamb? Do I listen carefully to the Lamb of God? We need to not dismiss what we don't understand. It's really easy for us in our devotions to just live in Paul's writings. Because it, it, it seems more direct to us. It's, it's written to Christians. And, and application seems easier to draw out of Paul's writings than it does out of the Beatitudes. I get, I, I can put my finger, I can at least put my finger on husbands, lay yourselves down for your your wives as Christ does the church. I can put my finger on that a lot easier than I can blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. That one takes a lot more work. And so I'm just going to camp out in Paul and I'm going to leave the Gospels alone. Every now and then I'll read them and I'll say, wow, Jesus was really great but I don't understand what he says and I'll just push it to the side and, and wait for a professional to explain it to me. If that's what you're doing, and you're relying on me as your professional. Good luck. No. Um, <laughs> let's not dismiss what we don't understand. Let's 
dig deep into what Jesus says. Let's listen carefully. Yes, it takes more work, and yes, it's worth it. And finally, will you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? After seeing and experiencing the great love of God for you in Christ, after coming to recognize maybe just a little bit more this morning the scope of how great our Savior is, will you love Him with every part of who you are? Will you love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you give yourself to Him more fully? Let's pray. Father God, You are great. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his power, for his lordship. We thank you that he knows better for us than we know for ourselves. And God, I pray that we would not harbor a part of our life where we try to disallow him from being Lord. Glorify yourself in us. Stir up in our hearts affections for yourself what we need, what we need most at any time is to walk with you. Give us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.